This is Street Signals, a weekly conversation about markets and macro brought to you by State Street Global Markets. I'm your host, Tim Graff, Head of Macro Strategy for EMEA at State Street, based in London. At the start of the year, the Chinese economy was set to reopen. Emerging market central banks elsewhere were poised to ease after aggressive tightening campaigns, and the outlook for EM assets was pretty robust. Well, things haven't exactly gone to plan, especially where China's concerned. Though many EM currencies, especially those paying high carry, still have put in some pretty strong performances. Lately, we've also had to consider the effects that the twin threats of a rising US dollar and rising oil prices have had, and we continue to get bad news from the Chinese property sector. This week, Ben Luck is back on the podcast to discuss how the outlook for China is changing, and also that double whammy of rising oil prices and a stronger dollar and how all of that plays out for regional performance in Asia. So Ben, it is really good to have you back. And it's always good to hear about content coming from your part of the world, Asia. And we're going to talk today about China. Um, So thanks very much for joining. Thank you again, Tim, for inviting me. Let's start with China. I mean, it's interesting. Three or four weeks ago, this was the big thing that was going to start to really slow the global economy more so than it already was expected to slow. We were hearing lots more about debt in the property sector. We're going to talk a little bit about country garden in a moment, but actually just over the last week or so, this feels like it's gone really quiet. Can you talk about that? Do you think the worst is now priced in or do we still have to worry about this? I think the, I would say that the worst is, is not priced in yet, but I think a lot of the unknown issues that were previously um, not mentioned yet by by the media or or not really escalated yet, those have now been, I would say, more so understood by Chinese officials. I think when we actually look back at a a couple of reasons to to, to what has basically happened is we, we continue to see three parts of China still having a very, very, I would say, uh, a weak momentum. First is there's still a very soft labor market, something that we, we don't see, right, when we actually compare that to the U.S., where um, uh, China is still facing slow income growth. Um, that has obviously reduced the purchasing power of many households. There's a very, very high unemployment rate, especially for uh, the, the young individuals, the ones that are recently graduated from, from, from university. And, and that is coupled on with the fact that there is a, a housing crisis that's happening right now. And to, to all the readers and, and listeners out there, they don't know much about the Chinese property market. Then one of the things we need to know is that Chinese investors love properties and they do put a lot of their capital into the property sector. And that actually creates a a wealth effect. When prices are down, which we are tracking around the top 70 cities, and they're actually down for 18 months already. So there's a Mm. much lower or weaker wealth effect that we're seeing. And that's really the the, one of the reasons why there's less incentive to, to spend right now. And that continues to be an issue, which is why when we actually look at our price test numbers that Tim, you mentioned, is that inflation is firmly in deflation territory right now that we're seeing in China. What struck me about this looking at the price stats indicators and for context we look mostly at supermarket and fresh food prices so it is a little bit more limited of a data set i think an expanded version of this is coming but right now we have kind of a limited lens through which we can view this but relative to the COVID period actually deflation right now is worse now relative to a period where there was enforced curtailment of demand you're actually seeing worse and more persistent deflation 
Do you think there is any intention to correct this near term with policy to to reflate quickly? Or is it just too big of a task or too low of a priority of a task relative to some of the other issues already you've already mentioned? When we actually look at just say apples to apples, looking at the, the Chinese official inflation, um, food has been on this downward trend for more than 12 months already. In particular, it's really been dragged down by pork prices. We often go through cycles in terms of pork prices where there can be an, an abundant amount of supply, which has basically been the case over the last 12 months. So if we look mm. at the annual change, the year over year number, it's actually down 18%. So that is a big drop, obviously, in terms of dragging the overall prices lower. But when we actually look at core inflation as well in China, um, core inflation that the PBOC has always said is to have a long-term stability of somewhere around 3%. But when we actually look at the official core inflation numbers, that's actually been below half of that, 1.5% for more than three years. So the issue that we actually see right now is that there's just a very weak or low um, desire for actually people to spend. And that actually works against what the PBOC is intending. I mean, as I mentioned before, the, the PBOC is very active right now in trying to, to lower rates and trying to stimulate demand. But what we're seeing looking at the data is that uh, a lot of investors and a lot of households are actually taking advantage of this low rates, not to spend, but they're just refinancing their existing loans. And, and that is actually helping them to, to actually save up even more, because if we actually look at the household saving deposits numbers, those are now still at a very near record high, very close to still the pandemic level, which means to us that there's still a, a very insecurity, I would say, in terms of mm. Chinese consumers to spend, given all the things that they're seeing right now. Thinking then about how the government supports things, potentially reflates, but more to the point, reduces potentially that impulse to save. Is there anything forthcoming? I mean, a couple of weeks ago, the discussion centered around where local governments, where corporates, small, medium enterprises might not have the capacity to take on debt in what is already a debt-laden economy, the central government does. Is there anything you think that is forthcoming on that front? I think the monetary side is more going to be status quo. We know they're going to cut rates. We know they're going to do it on a, at, at a step by step basis, but the, mm. but the impact in terms of real economy is still limited. It really comes down to their ability to spend. And the numbers that we're tracking right now, fiscal spending up to the first eight months that, that we have data for, according to uh, Chinese officials, is that they've already, they've only spent actually 55% of the budget. Last year, when they set this budget, was around 4.3 trillion. So mm. after eight months' time, they've only spent 55%. So they're they're well behind the schedule when it comes to what they could spend, and that could be two things, right? They can obviously go through the more simple way, which is obviously issuing or allowing for local governments to issue more special bonds, really to replenish some of their balance sheets and do direct support via the local governments to actually help consumption, or the other way would be actually doing direct support to the property sector. That would be more of, I would say, a, a turnaround or a more of an inflection point where they understand or acknowledge the weakness in the property sector, but they don't want it to collapse. I think what they're doing right now is still quite slow. And given that they have a 45% budget left over that they can still spend in the next 
three and three and a half months, there's still a lot that they can do. But for now, that's not really where they're focused on right now. They're still understanding the situation and doing it at a very, very slow pace. That actually is a perfect lead in then to the next part of the discussion I wanted to have. And this, I don't think this is necessarily strictly a China issue, although I think we probably should start there. But the dollar is bringing up a lot of problems. And I think one of the ones we talked about this a couple of weeks ago with Ramu Tiagarajan, who works as a senior investment advisor, he brought up as part of a discussion of de-dollarization, the dollar's rising correlation, positive correlation with oil, which typically you go back 20 years, you would always think about it being typically negatively correlated, oil up, the dollar down, vice versa. Of course, that was when the U.S. was massive energy importer as opposed to one of the biggest producers. This double whammy, though, I want to talk about for particularly Asian oil importers who have to deal also with the strength of the dollar. I mean, I'm surprised in looking at year-to-date currency performance that many Asian currencies who would fit this bucket of being hit twice by that have actually performed really well and haven't suffered too much. How do you see it playing out from here, though? When it comes to understanding the dollar, the, the one thing that is the most important to EM, including Asia, is whether or not that country is vulnerable to capital outflows mm. because of the repatriation, very simply. Um, yeah. Asia, over the last decade, has massively improved their position, and they stand much stronger comparing to the likes of LATAM or emerging Europe. Now, obviously, from, from an investment perspective, they, they, they yield much lower because they have a much higher credit rating and, and they are obviously much more stable. I mean, Asia has much less debt and much higher FX reserves comparing to many parts of EM. And that's really given by, driven by the fact that many of these economies are export-oriented. So they have a persistent positive balance of payment when it comes to their, their monthly rollovers in terms of the funds that they get and the money that they can receive from exporters. And last but not least, also Asia, because of the fact that they have a strong balance of payment, they also have a much smaller uh, foreign ownership in terms of the bond space comparing to the likes of EM where they rely on fixed income flows as a way to basically fund their either current account or their fiscal account deficits. So Asia in of itself relies more by, um, on itself, which is why they are, mm. I would say, more resilient in the current cycle comparing to before. But to your earlier point, Tim, I don't think Asia is fully detached from the current environment, which is they, they still will most likely underperform, I guess, in the near term, but they are more, I would say, um, concentrated now in terms of focusing on fundamentals relative to the rest of the EM. I guess we can maybe sidestep the dollar question a little bit on that basis. They have the current account support and, and limited appetite or limited potential, I should say, for capital outflows. They have less of a dollar-denominated debt as a percentage of outstanding. But let's focus then on where I started the question was talking about the dollar and oil. Let's talk about oil then. And I know this is probably going to be a topic of discussion for a while in emerging markets. I think we've got some documents coming out, more documents even coming out this week on this. Since the start of Q3, oil prices are up about 25%. And you know we've had that dollar effect thrown at these Asian currencies. The renminbi has been under pressure for several months now or the last couple of months. And yet, generally speaking, I'd say they've they've basically held in. But 
what does energy now pose as a threat? Are these economies that are largely importers set up to handle this relatively well through other means, through the, the strength of exports of other products? And is that the case as well when we're considering that global trade volumes are now starting to decline as a reflection of slower growth, tighter policy, etc.? The natural way of many of these um, Asian economies, as we actually see higher commodities, not just oil prices being higher, is that they would tend to actually drain their FX reserves in these mm -hmm. difficult times. First of all, to defend their currency, but second of all, to also provide subsidies to the overall real economy so that you can actually still keep consumption afloat, at least in the near term. Um, that basically allows for you to basically avoid the, the ups and the downs that you would actually see in, in, in Asia versus obviously in, in, in the rest of EM. When we actually look at the Asia story, naturally, yes, it's obviously going to be negative because most of Asia, or basically the entirety of Asia, is almost all net oil importers. Uh, but more importantly, um, what we can also see is that um, when it comes to oil prices, obviously in, in impacting inflation, the natural thing that we talked about, when inflation starts to pick up again, there's a natural tendency now for EM central banks to actually become more cautious. And that is starting to be priced in when it comes to market expectations of many EM central banks, even if they were wanting at the beginning to actually cut rates to stimulate the economy, they have to unfortunately turn more cautious, at least in the near term. But it's different for Asia because Asia never had high interest rates to start with. They always had low interest rates to start with. So their pricing or market expectation for them to cut rates were always much lower than the likes of LATAM or the likes of emerging Europe. So even when oil prices have shot much higher, um, investors were not anticipating for Asian central banks to actually cut rates very aggressively anyway. So that in of itself actually helps Asia to be at least from a volatility perspective, to be actually um, much lower comparing to many parts of EM. So I think that also helps. And the last thing I want to highlight is other than oil that actually drives um, Asia, another thing is also this competitive devaluation story that we often hear uh, when it comes to uh, trade profiles in Asia. And, and, and that really stems from the fact that we continue to see weakness in the renminbi before and also persistent weakness now in the Japanese yen because of easy policy from, from Japan, both of which actually makes it very difficult for Asian central banks to actually try to, to appreciate the currency when you actually see your major trading partners actually keep the currency low or actually continue to, to depreciate. So all of that is an anchoring effect that we're seeing right now in, China, uh, in, in Asia, as long as we don't see a turnaround in both the PBOC or the BOJ action, then I think Asia would just be a muddle through story. But I think the oil story is still going to be more of an issue for ex-Asia as opposed mm. to just Asia itself. Let's think about the currency views then that come around this. And I want to think it particular about it particularly in the context of the positioning metrics we have for EM Asian currencies. And let's start with the renminbi. So as was mentioned, and as I think everybody who follows markets knows, the renminbi was under significant pressure when all of these risk factors you and I have talked about for the first 20 minutes or so of this podcast were playing out. 
that pressure seems to have abated. As you said, the PBOC has been very busy. They've been very much trying to squeeze shorts within the Remimbi com trading complex, and I think have done so successfully. But we still have these pressures. And the yen you bring up is an interesting one, because I've always had in the back of my mind, one of the, the, the thoughts I've had is that one of the reasons Japan isn't likely or might not shift to tighter policy is that they actively want to grab market share in this environment and therefore won't tighten policy. But thinking about how that impacts the renminbi, in light of all those risks, in light of what I've just talked about with the, the regional competitive devaluation dynamic you brought up, do you see any potential for further renminbi weakness? I'm thinking against the dollar, selling it is still a decent carry play and a low vol one at that. Is there still downside for it? Oftentimes, Tim, you got it. I mean, bang on in terms of we 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 need to compare China or the renminbi against the dollar and also the renminbi against the trade weighted basket. And mm. I think what has shifted over the last few years since the uh, pandemic is that um, China understands that dollar dollar CNY is a very important sentimental driver. But when it comes to actually managing the currency on a more medium term basis, they have geared much more towards the trade weighted basket. And we have actually seen in the last two, three weeks where the trade weighted basket or the CFIX basket has really started to stabilize. And in particular, last week has actually appreciated again. Mm. And that's actually in contrast to what we see, which is persistent dollar strength against obviously a, a, a weaker EM complex, including renminbi as well. So I think the focus remains to be, they, they want to prevent excessive movements or volatility in the cross against the dollar, but the focus will be on basically the trade weighted basket. And I think where we are right now in the trade weighted basket is already the bottom. They have already um, signaled through their fixing every single day that they want to stabilize the CNY. And that's what we're seeing right now, despite the movement that you mentioned in the yen weakness or even in other parts of Asia, that's obviously driving that index as well, not just obviously the dollar. Okay. so. Remimbi on a basket basis, maybe the worst is over. Is there anything else from a positioning standpoint or a fundamental standpoint that you really like within the Asian currency space? We are more geared towards that the, the China story will recover. We often okay. say that monetary stimulus often tends to be more of a six-month lag. We started seeing that most of the policy stimulus came through near the end of May, early June. And we think that's going to basically start to see in the data as we actually track many of our own uh, macro momentum models where it could actually start to outperform possibly towards the, the end of the year. And actually, we're starting to see early stabilization of that. So the next natural one that we actually like is the Korean won. The Korean won okay. is not something that is overweight to your earlier point, as opposed to the CNY, which we see both the 20 day flows are in the top decile, positioning is also in the top decile. So it is a much more crowded trade, I would say in the near term, whereas I think Korea would also benefit from a, an anchor from, from China, but it's obviously much less in terms of um, its positioning. It's also undervalued comparing to many parts of Asia, which often is more overvalued when you compare that to many of the typical carry currencies that we see in EM. 
And the other one that we would actually play against it naturally would be something like um, India or also the Thai bot, where we actually see Southeast Asia to actually underperform at least more in terms of the medium term story. Now, I think the India story is a story where positioning is very stretched already is what we see. We've seen, I mean, the, the FX holdings really stuck in that top quintile for, for months already. And there were there were wobble moments in terms of actually flows being up and down. The recent news was actually quite positive in terms of JP Morgan announcing that they could include uh, Indian sovereign bonds within the index. Uh, the Indian bond market is a very small market relative to the equity market. So would that actually be enough of a driver to offset um, the, the, the outflows that we see, given that it is still one of the countries where we still see balance of payment being deficit as opposed to some of the more North Asian uh, economies. So playing uh, an RV trade is still a better strategy, I would say, in the current landscape, given that dollar continues to be quite strong. But I do lean more towards both China and Korea outperforming on a relative basis versus obviously the Thai bot and, and India being more on the vulnerability side. Ben, it's been a whirlwind tour. As we started the discussion, felt very, very much like something that could tip the risk asset complex over. But I think there's a lot of reasons to be a little bit more relaxed, maybe a little bit less defensive about things. And I think I think we need to leave it there, right? Yep. Happy again to join when China actually becomes another very hot topic in the near future. Thank you again. Absolutely. Ben. We will we will certainly have <laughs> you back. Thanks so much, Ben. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of Street Signals from the research team at State Street Global Markets. This podcast and all of our research can be found at our web portal, Insights. There, you'll be able to find all of our latest thinking on macroeconomics and markets, where we leverage our deep experience in research on investor behavior, inflation, risk, and media sentiment, all of which goes into building an award-winning strategy product. If you're a client of State Street, hit us up there at globalmarkets.statestreet.com. We'll see you next time. This communication is provided by State Street Bank and Trust Company, hereafter referred to as State Street, and is for informational purposes only, and is not intended to suggest or recommend any transaction, investment, or investment strategy. It does not constitute investment research, nor does it purport to be comprehensive or intended to replace the exercise of an investor's own careful, independent review and judgment regarding any investment decision. This communication and the information herein does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities or any financial instrument nor is it intended to constitute a binding contractual arrangement or commitment by State Street of any kind. The information provided does not take into account any particular investment objectives, strategies, investment horizon, or tax status. The views expressed herein are the views of State Street as of the date specified and are subject to change without notice based on market and other conditions. The information provided herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable at the time of publication. Nonetheless, we make no representations or assurances that the information is complete or accurate, and you should not place any reliance on said information. State Street hereby disclaims any warranty and all liability, whether arising in contract, tort, or otherwise, for any losses, liabilities, damages, expenses, or costs, either direct, indirect, consequential, special, or punitive, arising from or in connection with any use of this communication and or the information herein. State Street or its affiliates may from time to time as principal or agent for its own account or for those of its clients have positions in and or actively trade in financial instruments or other products identical to or economically related to those discussed in this communication. State Street may have a commercial relationship with issuers of financial instruments or other products discussed in this communication. 
This communication may contain information deemed to be forward-looking statements. These statements are based on assumptions, analyses, and expectations of State Street in light of its experience and perception of historical trends, current conditions, expected future developments, and other factors it believes appropriate under the circumstances. All information is subject to change without notice. This communication or any portion hereof may not be redistributed without the prior written consent of State Street. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.